Um, so as I indicated, we are doing a study in the book of Titus, and so some background information, and then we'll look at the text, and then ask ourselves what is uh, Paul uh, trying to t say to us and uh, in the context of his instructions to Titus for the church in Crete. So first of all, by way of background, remember that uh, Titus has been a, a fellow worker with Paul. Uh, the first time we run into him is mentioned in Galatians, when Paul says that uh, he is a Gentile, not a Jewish person, and accompanied him from uh, the place that uh, is in Antioch, which is the first major area outside of Jerusalem where the gospel had spread and the church had formed and the first location where Jew and Gentile were getting together. And obviously out of that emerged some challenges in terms of the identity and the, the nature of those who were participants in this new emerging phenomenon called the church. Because after all, you know that in Antioch was the first time that believers were called Christians, bearers of the name of Christ, those who believe in the anointed one. So at that particular point, as a result of the controversies that emerge in Antioch between Jew and Gentile, Barnabas is sent up there and he sees this and uh, he knows that this is above his pay scale and grade. So he decides to go and get uh, Paul and Paul is in Tarshish and uh, he comes back to Antioch and serves in ministry along with Barnabas and then finally decides that given the controversies that are emerging, uh, they need to go to Jerusalem to confer with the leadership in Jerusalem, uh, James and the others apostles, and find out how this particular uh, issue in the church in Antioch between Jew and Gentile needs to be resolved. And thereby emerges one of the early principles as to how the church began to address and resolve challenges in terms of its theology, in terms of its belief, in terms of its practices, and that was through the forum of what is called a council. And uh, church historians uh, recognize that this meeting in Jerusalem was the first council of the church. The church has subsequently met in various other councils to resolve deep theological divisions that have crept up in the church. The first one being in Ephesus, in, uh, I'm sorry, in, uh, in Nicaea, 325, when Constantine becomes emperor, calls the church together when the church is faced with heresy. And so in this particular context, Paul writes to Titus and saying is, look, I've left you in Crete and I am now leaving you there. Why? Because in verse 5 it says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what is left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. So there's some unfinished business in Crete and here... Uh, in uh, this particular location where there is both Jew and Gentile, we know that there's a Jewish community here. In Acts, when the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit is poured out, we notice that Cretans are part and parcel of those who are in Jerusalem, Jews, believers who have heard the gospel. And so the faith has come to um, the island of Crete, and Paul now believes that there is stuff that needs to be uh, put in place. And so the first thing he says is that in order to address the issues of the ongoing life of the church and of the identity of this new community, we must have appropriate leadership and an appropriate authority structure. So the first thing that we need to take away in terms of this letter that Paul writes to Titus is to understand that the church, in terms of one of its important 
um, indices or indicators of what a church is must always make sure that it has an appropriate authority structure. And so we know that the authority of the early church was always in the triune God made visible in the person of our Lord Jesus in the incarnation. And then those eyewitnesses who were witnesses to his life, his death, his resurrection, who bore testimony to this, and then who ultimately encapsulated it in a writing. The early church was a witness borne by eyewitnesses, but then as these eyewitnesses moved on, the church found it necessary to reduce their belief statements and their testimony and their witness to a writing, because as these authority figures moved on, the question emerges as what should be the authority within the church. And so since Reformation times, and even since earlier, the word of God in terms of the New Testament emerges as one of the key elements that constitutes the authority structure in the church. And when the church lost its way in terms of that fundamental principle, the Reformation had to come up and assert again sola scriptura, that is, by the scriptures alone. And so the scriptures emerge as the touchstone of what constitutes the place that you go to to find direction and purpose as to the witness of the church, the content of that church, and the meaning of what that is. And then, of course, emerges from that what is here indicated that appropriate authority structures must be put in place. And that is one of the first things that Titus is instructed to do. And there are two words that are used. It says, put in place those who are, quote-unquote, presbyteroi and episcopoi. Now, presbyteroi is the word that is usually translated as elders in our English, and episcopoi is usually translated as an overseer or a bishop, the pentecostal uh, construct. And so uh, Titus has said, put in place authority structures, all right, that are represented by your leaders who are these episcopoi and uh, presbyteroi. And they should then have a particular lifestyle. It's instructive that Paul, when he highlights the authority of these folks who are to head up the church, that he contrasts the qualifications for these folks in terms of these false leaders that are emerging, that are causing dissension in the church that we read through in chapter 1, verses 10 and following. And we look at who they are. But the fundamental issue that emerges is Paul making the baseline argument that just belief is not enough, that your leadership is going to be distinguished from false leadership and unauthentic leadership by not only what it is that they preach and teach, but how that translates into their lifestyle. And it's very interesting that as you see in the previous section, those characteristics that are the hallmarks of good and appropriate leadership manifested in terms of not only the witness which conforms to the scriptures, but also that witness which conforms to a lifestyle that gives meaning to the teaching and the identity of the people of God. So that is the context in which Titus is uh, reading this and receiving this. He's there in Crete, he's been left behind. And from extra biblical sources, from the history, uh, one of the early church fathers uh, wrote that uh, Titus becomes the first bishop the first episcopoi of Crete. And uh, he was ultimately buried there in Crete. And after the invasion of Crete by the Muslim forces, the Ottoman Empire, 
uh, his uh, head was dug up and taken from Crete and resides now in the Cathedral of St. Mark in Venice, Italy. And so that is the background in which we see this. So we see the church emerging. And the church is emerging uh, not with any scripted understanding of what its belief systems are or of its theology. These are things that will have to be developed as the church in various places develops its understanding in the, in the construct of living in these cultures and societies. So Paul writes to various of these churches and out of that we begin to start formulating our theology and our understanding of scriptural truths. So don't ever think that the early church had one monolithic understanding of its identity, its belief systems, and its theology, and its understanding of how scripture was to be understood. They had the basic outlines of the gospels, right? By this particular time, the gospels had come into being, and the writings of Paul had been circulated and had become authoritative. So the church was now emerging in terms of discovering its identity in these various constructs, and obviously, as a result, discussions grew, divisions grew, dissensions grew, heresy started creeping into the church. And it is in this context that, again, Paul is writing because, obviously, there's a problem of heresy creeping in in terms of misapplied truths and misapplied understandings and misunderstood leadership criteria. And so we go into chapter 1, verse 10, and we begin to start looking at the specifics of what Paul is writing to Titus. He says, but uh, there are many rebellious people mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. So it appears that what is causing the problem in Crete is the fact that there is a group of folks, part of whom are called the circumcision group, who are now characterized as rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. You need to look those at those terms, rebellious. And so what uh, Paul is referring to and giving instruction to Titus, he says, you know, you just have to read the Old Testament, which was now the authoritative text of scripture that they had. Remember that all of the Gospels and the New Testament has, hasn't come into the form that we know it. So the Old Testament is authoritative. And Paul is reminding Titus that if you look at the Old Testament experience of the people of uh, God, the Israelites, through the Exodus narrative, they were always a people who were mumbling and grumbling and rebellious, rebellions against authority, rebellions against God, uh, trying to find their own way of trying to create their own theology, uh, own create their own understanding of who God is and the golden calf and idolatry. All of this continues to be pervasive in the experience of Israel. And Paul is reminding Titus, this is not a new phenomenon. And these rebellious folks are those that have no use for authority. And they believe that their understanding of truth ought to trump everything else both accepted authority and factual authority of the leadership. And so Paul then talks about these rebellious people, those who are childlike, and that's the word that is translated, those little children who have these tenter, temper tantrums because they just don't want to accept the authority of their parents, and in this case, of the leadership, uh, who are the ones who are proclaiming the leadership of our Lord. So he says they are rebellious people, mere talkers, and the word that is here says they are windbags. A lot of uh, words being used, but really without any major substance. Windbags, he says, he defines them as windbags and deceivers. And the word that is uh, used here by Paul is those who are trying to pass on counterfeit currency. And the one thing that you know about counterfeit currency is that it's a good counterfeit when it passes off as the real thing. 
when there's very little difference between what is being passed off as truly a deceitful currency and that which is supposed to be the true, deceiving, uh, true currency. And so it says it behooves both authorities and those receiving this currency to be those that can differentiate and understand. So he says, but the intent is for these folks, the characteristics is that they're out to take truth and mix it up in such a fashion that what they want to teach, which becomes untruthful. So there's always elements, and that is why in our time and age when we are confronted with fake news, uh, we seem to be so confused as being unable to find out what is the true merit of what is being peddled. And so in our churches as well, we are increasingly finding this to be a problem in terms of our inability to distinguish good teaching, true teaching, appropriate teaching from those that are being peddled as the truth and those that claim our attention and obedience. So he says they are deceivers, they are mere talkers and rebellious, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, who are these? They appear at least about three times in the New Testament. Um, they appear here, they appear in Galatians, Ephesians where Paul talks about this group of people who are for basically Jewish people who have come to faith and who are part of the congregation and are now uh, demanding and uh, claiming certain things in terms of what the identity of this new people of God are. Please remember that Christianity, as we call it, emerges out of its Jewish roots. It starts in Jerusalem, and our Lord never went outside of Palestine and he was Jewish, and so as that testimony was given, there emerged this notion of what ought to be the identity and the practices of this new group of people that claims allegiance to this new Messianic person called Jesus. And so you'll notice that what the Jewish people believe, and rightly so because they were appealing to the Old Testament, they're saying is that if you want to be a people of God, then you have to be the people who were called by God, which was the Israelites. And if you are to maintain your identity, then you ought to practice the things that set you apart as a Jew. And so the Jewish people hallmarked their identity by certain features. One, they lived separately, even when they went outside the uh, nation of Israel in Palestine, they chose to live in what are called ghettos because they felt that they ought not to mix up with these uh, folks who did not believe as they did or lived as they went. So they tended to kind of live in their own little areas. They practiced their worship separately. They never went to the temples and, and did what the rest of the pagans did, as they call them, or the unbelievers. Uh, they didn't eat the food that uh, the uh, average person outside of Palestine ate. They had their own dietary restrictions. Uh, then they dressed differently. They uh, had their own uh, style in terms of the uh, dresses that they wore so that they could be identified. They practiced a type of morality, especially sexual morality, which totally out of kilter with the then uh, lifestyle of the pagan lifestyle, which was very loose and, and, and kind of uh, um, you know, could um, encompass most anything. And so these were hallmarkers and, of course, circumcision and worship and all of these aspects were hallmarkers of what it meant to be a Jew. And so what was emerging is that since this is a really Jewish movement, then maybe the new community that is emerging ought to have these hallmarks as identifiers of the unique identity of this emerging community as well. Now what Paul is saying is that, guys, you've got this whole matter wrong. Why circumcision and why food habits and all of this were given to you was to foretell a truth 
that is an inward reality as well. The reason that you practice external circumcision, as Paul will later on articulate, and is, uh, is there in the scriptures, it says what God is asking for is a circumcision of the heart, just not a, a circumcision physically. That tells you that there is an inward reality that you are pro proclaiming through an external means. And the reason why you don't partake in food is because you want to express yourself that there is a difference. As you saw in the case of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, when they went and were taken captives, they decided that food habits was one of the reasons where they were going to express their unique identity and their belief in God. They said, well, try us out. And so this was a means by which you basically set apart and saying is that, yeah, if you look at this, you'll see that we worship a different type of God. And you'll notice that gluttony and all of this are things that come back in here because they all relate to food issues. And so Paul is saying is that all of this stuff about food habits, and this is why, again, when you look at the episode in Acts, you'll notice that when Peter is confronted with inaugurating the entry of the first Gentile, Cornelius, he receives this vision of a sheet coming down, and there's all kinds of animals in there, and Peter is aghast when he's told to kill and eat, and he says, how can I, these are all unclean animals, and we've never in our religion to, been told to eat this, and how are you telling us to eat this? And Paul says, and, and our Lord tells Peter, he says, what I have created as clean, you, you dare not call unclean. And this is the problem, he says, you know, this cleanliness and uncleanliness in the um, latter part of this section emerges from this notion of what is the criteria by which we should then identify ourselves. And the problem is saying is that it's not Jewishness, it's something more than Jewishness. He says, because if you truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will understand that it is in fact rooted in the Jewish promises of God. The most fundamental being the call of Abraham, where God promised Abraham that through him, all nations of the world would be blessed. And what Paul is saying is that if you continue to maintain these hallmarkers, as the items that identify you, you're going to miss out on the promises of God when God says, no, the time has come when this has got to be enlarged to not just include Jews, but include everybody else. And how you're going to get there, it has got to happen apart from the mere outward expressions of your identity to the inward reality of what God is doing in our lives. And he says, that is the reason and of course, there is a pushback against this. And there's this group of these, of the circumcision group, Jewish folks predominantly are saying, Paul, you've got it all wrong. And so therefore, we must maintain this. And Paul gives us a hint when he talks about the qualifications of a leader in the church. When you read the previous section, he says the uh, bishop or the elder or the one who is the overseer, you know, the episcopoi, when one of his qualifications is to be a hospitable person. And again, I emphasize the fact that Paul continuously contrasts the life or the belief system of the leaders against these false leaders in terms of their lifestyles. And he says, one of the hallmarks of the lifestyle is one who's philexenos, who's hospitable. And as I have reminded you often enough, the word philexenos comes from the two Greek words phileo and xenos. Phileo, to love as in a brotherly love type of an affection, and xenos, from where we get the word xenophobia, that means to love that which is different. Xenos means different. And so Paul is saying is that in our leadership, we have already told you what is appropriate. We've already enlarged our measure of inclusion by being people who practice philexenos. That is opening our homes, the most vulnerable aspects of our living, to those who are very different from us. 
So when somebody comes knocking on a door, you know, and you open it, if you were a Jew and you found it was a Gentile, you close the door because to be associated with a Gentile to even eat meat is to defile yourself. And what Paul is saying, it's gone away. If the Abrahamic promise that God is going to take Abraham and make him a blessing to all peoples, then you've got to expand the understanding of who is a true Jew. And it can't be this limited sense of what the party of the circumcision is calling it to be. We have to be people who practice hospitality, people who are earmarked by Philip Zenos, those that have no hesitation in bringing into our circle those who are very, very different. And that is why the early church, when you look at the history of the church, the early church was earmarked by being a haven for the dispossessed, the women, the slaves, and in great measure, they were the ones who filled the pews of the early churches. Why? Because there was a radical proclamation that something different had happened in the proclamation and in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, this is contrary to, in terms of the emerging lifestyle of this new community called the Ecclesia, the Church of God. And so he says, this is why you, in your households, you're right, uh, you can't be this selective. He says, they must be silenced. And again, Paul talks about this notion. They must be silenced. He uses a very harsh term in a sense. They, you must ask them to shut up, he says. Now, why does he say this? Because as leaders, what Paul is saying is that there are some things which ought not to be allowed to fester. It's like gangrene in the body. You know, you don't continue to tolerate gangrene because once you determine it's infectious, you have to amputate. And Paul is saying that these matters are so severe as to cause so much dissension and disruption in the life of the body of Christ and the life of the church that you must have, from a leadership point, active involvement to get this stopped. So here Paul says is that they must be silenced. That means you've got to put a stop over their mouths for they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And here we get an early indication how the early church was com uh, comprised. You will notice that they didn't have these large edifices that we call our churches where everybody got together in the hundreds. They gathered together in the home of wealthier members of the church, and that's how the early church emerged as those that were constituted in what we call household churches or household aggregations. And it was there that the word was taught and fellowship meals were shared. You read about it in Corinthians where, again, people misunderstood what happens in these aggregations, these worship services, and where the rich were being separated from the poor. Those who had enough were separated from those who didn't have enough. And Paul says, this simply can't go on. This dissonance between what we preach and what we experience in our lifestyles cannot be divergent. And he calls them to task both in Corinth and here again. He says in the early church there are these groups of people that are going in there and teaching contrary to what the true authority of the church is proclaiming. And he says what? And why do they do this? He says please understand the motives of these people who bring dissension and disruption and division within the early church. They do it for dishonest gain. Now, please understand, it has no problems with gain. So if you have investments to make and if you want to invest in uh, funds and mutual funds and everything else, please go to it, make money, and pay your tithes. Yeah, that's a good thing. So honest gain is not a problem. That's not what Paul is talking about. What is this issue of dishonest gain? Well, in the culture of its day, what happened is that the more disciples you got, the more money you got from them. We have some of that going on in our day and age as well. 
and it was the expectation that if you were a disciple of a person who was your teacher, you were under an obligation to support that teacher. So what Paul is saying is that they're doing it only to have a larger number of disciples so that you guys can support them, and that he terms as dishonest gain. It's not the way, and Paul elsewhere talks about us who do not peddle the word of God as some do. He says, we are not in the business of peddling the word of God so as to make money. All kinds of heresies that go out there, the prosperity gospel and, you know, name it and gain it and all of the stuff that's going on that begins to look predictably close to what this is being talked about here as dishonest gain and a, a non-conformity to the scriptures. And then he goes off and saying, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. It's a harsh statement, and many have said, well, my gosh, what is Paul doing? Is he, um, you know, using language that, uh, you know, wipes out a whole group of people, every Cretan? And he, of course, is uh, referring to Epimenides, who was a prophet who was perceived in 600 BC, by the way, or right, 600 years plus before this. He was considered as one of the seven wise men of Crete, and he had written many plays, and he had made many prophecies, many of them in Crete and in Athens, and some of them had come true, so he was seen as a prophet. And um, so he made the statement, we don't have the exact uh, poem which he wrote, but it was referred to by others, and that's where we get the information of where this saying comes from. So Paul was obviously very well lettered in the matters of uh, the literature of the day. He was a well-educated person, so he refers to this. And he says, your own prophet has told you that all Cretans are liars, referring to the basis of why you ought to not have any truck with these dishonest leaders. Now, there is a problem in this text, because why? Epimenides being a Cretan, if he says all Cretans are liars, he himself is a Cretan, and so you ought not to believe him either, is the rationality of the statement. All right, so what is Paul saying? Is this Paul is saying is that, listen, I'm using it, what is called an ad hominem argument, saying you yourselves believe this, right? You have come to it, because in its day and age, by the time Paul was writing, um, there were terms that were used to qualify various lifestyles. So if you were a Corinthian, if you were said, oh, he's a Corinthian, she's a Corinthian, it's because you had a lavish lifestyle. And you couldn't care about sexual mores and uh, all of this. Yeah, you just had a good old time. You were a, oh, well, that guy's a Corinthian. And if you were one of those, you know, slimy, deceptive guys, oh, he's a Cretan. All right. So national people, you know, people have national reputations, right? Uh, if you ask uh, in, about India, say, oh, these are guys who are fixated with Bollywood and Hollywood and uh, songs and uh, cricket, right? And, oh, if you ask somebody out west, uh, what's your perception of Indian? Oh, they're very good in math and they're very good in uh, computers, all right? Uh, and so this is what we consider to be, uh, you know, what Indians are. And uh, you know, when I was uh, studying abroad, I was having a hard time with math, and so I went to my instructor, and the immediate instructor looked, you're from India and you don't know math? I'm sorry, I don't know that. <laughs> yeah. There's national perceptions of what people are all about, right? And so, again, Paul is uh, referring to a national uh, characteristic that goes on. He's saying is that all Cretans are lies, and so therefore you ought to be wary of what they are. But remember that uh, uh, this is hyperbole. This is a form of address that Paul is using, right, in terms of saying, look, uh, yeah, clearly those folks who are holding to the truth are not liars. All right, obviously they're not. It's only this group of people who are part and parcel of this group who are spreading all this gangrene into the life of the church. 
these guys are truly expressing their national identity. And so therefore, they need to get a new identity, which is the identity that is emerging from the church. And you ought to give this up. And it's very interesting as to what Paul says about these Cretans. He says, not only are they always lies, they're evil brutes and lazy gluttons. Evil brutes. You know, Crete was known for the one place where there were no wild animals. It's an island. And he says, you know what has happened? You've become the wild animals of Crete. And he says, evil gluttons. You know, there's nothing wrong about food, but when you begin to start using food for inappropriate ends, it leads to severe outcomes. Because if you had food, you should be energized to do something. You're saying is that all your food is doing is leading you to gluttony. And as a result of your gluttony, you have become useless, lazy, and ineffective. And so therefore, he says, therefore, this testimony. So therefore, he says, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to commands of those who reject the truth. And again, Paul uses a rather severe term. He says, you know, you know talk to them harshly. That just, uh, he says, uh, you know, rebuke them sharply. He says, you know, there are some errors in the church. There are some problems within the church that are so disruptive and so dangerous that, uh, you know, this is not subject to discussion, guys. It needs to be put a stop to immediately. <clears throat> John Calvin, one of the great reformers of the Reformation, uh, said this about leadership. He says, you know, when leadership only takes care of the internal issues of the church and teach and fatten up the believers and don't take care of the back door, they only invite wolves to devour the fatted sheep. So as leaders, we have the responsibility not only to guard the front door, that is, to make sure that those who come in through the front door are properly taught, discipled, and nurtured so that you grow in the faith, but secondarily, that you also guard the back door so that sheep uh, do not, or wolves do not come in masquerading as sheep and devouring the sheep. And this is the responsibility of leadership. And this is the responsibility that we have to succumb to in terms of understanding that, yes, we have this responsibility to ensure that sound doctrine and sound teaching is particularly the hallmark of good leadership. And so, again, Paul goes on to say and gives instructions, says, therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to all of this Jewish myths and stuff. And then he goes on, he says, look what happens. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. And the word that he uses there, corrupted, is the word that is used when cloth is dyed in a different color. He says, you know what the problem is with these guys? They're supposed to be red, but they dyed themselves as blue, right? And they're masquerading now. He says, don't, don't trust us, trust us. You know, how do you do it? You, 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 you know, poor dye comes off pretty easily, right? And so he's saying is that these guys are, you know, masquerading, it says they will be, uh, you know, bought out because they are corrupted. They've been misdyed, if you will. And the question is, again, when we characterize ourselves and we look for true leadership, he says, where do we come out? He says, says, please be concerned because they believe nothing is pure. They are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. That's the ultimate characterization of these leaders. That final phrase, unfit for doing anything good, is really one word in the Greek. It talks about not fit for purpose. 
it is like the word that is used when you determine the um, sort of, uh, not the accuracy, the, the, the purity of metal. So if somebody gives you gold and you break it and you find that it's just lead, then that's the word that is used. This is not fit for purpose. It says you're passing off fake stuff as the truth and when it gets into the marketplace, people are going to realize this is fake. <clears throat> and therefore, when you try to get into the marketplace and give them money, you're not going to be able to achieve the purposes for which that is intended to change lives. <clears throat> So, what is the conclusion of all of this and what is the application? For one thing, what we have to understand is that a proper definition of church must always, must always include within it a proper authority structure. And we, in the Protestant tradition, understand that that begins with an authority that is given to the revealed word of God, which is our scriptures. <coughs> All authority comes from that one source. <clears throat> Secondly, that there are people that we appoint, presbyteri, episcopi, who are selected because of certain characteristics, not only in what they teach, but also in their lifestyle. Now, this authority structure must also have as its component people who are appropriately put in place to exercise authority, to teach and to live so that no disreputation is brought to the word of God and to the reputation of its people. Thirdly, we must become people who are Bible literate. What is the plague of our churches is that increasingly we have become biblically illiterate. We have a hard time finding people, qualified men and women, who have trained themselves to fill our pulpits and to take up leadership positions in our churches. In our own church here, how many times have we gone out and saying, can you serve as a deacon? Can you serve as an elder? And we have a hard time. One, either you feel unqualified to do so, or you feel that you just don't want to. And so we have a crisis of biblical illiteracy. And we have to address this in terms of saying, it's not just necessary to read your scriptures, but to be educated in it, because that is one of the hallmarks of a vibrant, healthy church. Because if you don't become literate in the scriptures, you will never be able to understand what is sound teaching. So the second thing that we must do in this particular context is to become theologically literate. Now, if you look at the New Testament, right, especially the gospel narratives, the eyewitnesses, they give you eyewitness accounts. But what has to emerge is how the dots are connected. <clears throat> what is our understanding of salvation? What is our understanding of the end times? What is our understanding of Christology in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? What is our understanding of the Trinity? What is the understanding in terms of sin? All of these great doctrinal positions that come from connecting the dots in a coherent, consisting manner, which are true to reveal scripture, that tells us what our theological position is on critical matters. And part of the reason we have become theologically illiterate is because we do not have appropriate discussions within our circles and within our churches about important matters that are important. So what Paul is saying is that, yes, things will happen. Discussions will happen. 
but be careful about those who have the wrong type of discussions and bring in the wrong type of metrics to determine what is true and false. And said, so, yes, we ought to be able to ask ourselves what are the appropriate questions of the day and what are the appropriate answers in the context of where the authority answers come from. Let me ask you, why is it that our children are so less educated in sexual matters that they must look for it outside the church and not within the church? And then we complain about sexual looseness in our churches. And we complain about divorce and fractured marriages and fractured relationships because we have had no discussion, although the scripture is full of instruction about what appropriate relationships ought to be in the sexual realm. But it's one of those taboos. We never talk about it. We don't preach about it very often. And it's one of those sensitive topics we don't want to discuss. Is there any question? Is there any, any reason why we begin to see this fractured relationships continue in our churches? We never talk about politics, right? Oh, God forbid we should talk about politics in our churches. You know what the church was saying when it said Jesus is Lord? It was making a seditious statement. But oh, if you want to keep your friends, don't talk about religion and don't talk politics. Our Lord had lots to say about politics. Our Lord had a lot to say about social justice and who's a citizen and who's not a citizen and who participates in your society. CAA is going on and we have all this. And what does the Lord say about scripture, in scripture about these people? He says what? Open your doors to the Philexanos, the alien, the stranger, the disenfranchised, the leper who's on the outside who can't come into your society because he's unclean. There's lots that the scriptures have to say, but we will never have those discussions in our circles, right? We will not even know the answers to this. We don't discuss social justice. We don't discuss economic justice. Is our tax system fair? Oh, God forbid that we should ever be asked that. None of us wants to pay taxes. That's what the scripture teaches, eh? That's not what the scripture teaches. These are questions that must be answered and discussed within the context of our theological literacy. And when we fail to do this, we fail to function as the people of God. Jobs. How ought you to hold your jobs and your positions? Do we have a theology about jobs? But you know what? The Garden of Eden starts with an addressing to jobs. Here's a garden. Go take care of it. Your gardeners. Go do it. But yet we never discuss what all of this means in our context. Next point that Paul raises is that learn obedience to God through obedience to congregational authority. That's a hard one. Right? Dis discipline, church discipline is one of the hardest factors that we in the Protestant church especially face. Because when the authority says it's wrong, you ought to change and you ought to correct what is going on, be it in marriage and be it in your lifestyle or be it in other things, the way you treat your money. You know what happens? You pick up your bags, you take your income and you say, I'm going elsewhere. And you shop for another church that is more in tune with what you believe. Church shopping has become our answer 
the church discipline. You don't like it, there's always another church. Please understand that the congregation is the crucible within which we learn the love of God by learning to love one another. The congregation is the crucible in which we learn obedience when we are asked to obey God. And when we have these dysfunctions, we run into problems. Finally, please understand there can be no dysfunction or no disconnection between orthodoxy and orthopraxia. All right? What does it mean? It says when there's a dysfunction between what you preach and what you teach, you might as well hang up your boots. And that's why he says our leadership must always be evidenced by a proper lifestyle to evidence the reality of what it is that you preach. And many of us, unfortunately, have made this dissonance in terms of believing that what you believe and what you practice can be totally disconnected. And that leads to this issue of what I call cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writing about this thing is that in our churches, we have learned to practice cheap grace. A belief that calls for no action, no conformity to the truth, and no ability to influence anything. Why? Because we believe that God in his great and infinite mercy and love, which is the truth, somehow will forgive everything that we do, which is the truth, but you take no responsibility morally or otherwise, which is false. God will hold you morally responsible for the things that you do. It does not mean that you suffer your you know, surfeit or your salvation. But believe me, God has a way of teaching you the price of obedience. Why? Because that is part of the discipline of God to teach you what obedience to his word means. So, how do you recognize false teachers? One, they promote themselves. They cause dissension and division they don't promote unity. They contradict the teachings of scripture. They serve their own appetites and pleasures and they're deceivers to the very end. And so J.C. Riley, a 19th century divine from England, said this, he said, three things there are which men ought never to trifle with. A little poison, a little false doctrine, a little sin. If we are to keep ourselves as a healthy, vibrant body of faith and a congregation, remember that we must always function under an appropriate authority structure. We must be biblically literate. We must be biblically, theologically literate. We must be people who understand how we function under authority and discipline. And finally, we must get away from the practice of cheap grace. One of the things that the early church did in terms of making sure that we knew what it is that we believe was through the recitation of our creeds. All right. Early church had as its first foundational teaching in terms of enumerating your theology was the Apostles' Creed. I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. There it is, all of the great doctrines of the early church. And when the church ran into heresy and started, people started questioning 
the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first council of Nicaea articulated what we call the Nicene Creed, and we articulated the definitions of what it meant to confess Jesus as the uniquely begotten of the Father, of the same substance, of the same uniqueness as the Father, and not subordinate in any way and fashion. Learn to recite our creeds as the means of understanding our theological literacy. Learn to study the scriptures and be subject to the authority that you put in place as episcopoi and presbyteri. And may God give us the grace to live outside of cheap grace.